Well, thanks for having us today. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm going to do my best to hold still and talk. I'm usually a, a walker and a talker, um, so let's see how this goes. Um, thank you so much for having us. I wanted to just give you a brief little explanation of who Butte Historical Memorials is. Um, we were we are a nonprofit that was formed in 2015 from uh, the Butte History ed Adult Education course members that wanted to memorialize this event that we're going to talk about today. And you're going to see some artwork, sculptures done by a local Montana artist named Jim Dolan. Is anybody familiar with Jim? A few of you. Um, I'm probably going to say a few sculptures and it'll click with you as to who this guy is. Um, if you've ever driven through Livingston, you'll see a fly fisherman. And that was done by Jim. There's also another, like a photographer on the other side of town that was also done by Jim. If you've been in the Belgrade airport, there's some geese. Those were done by Jim. And if you've ever driven between Three Forks and Towns in Montana, you'll see up on the hillside, they're called the Blue Horses, and there's a herd of horses that look real um, until you stop and realize they're not moving. Um, but those are all Jim Dolan's pieces of artwork, so we're really honored to have such an esteemed um, artist working with this on our memorial. So picture this, Christmas 1894, Butte's still a pretty young town. Um, we were incorporated as a city in 1879, so only 15 years old. Just getting going, the city is growing year by year, hitting our peak population in 1917 at about 100,000 people. Christmas 1894, you guys are all from Montana, you know it gets pretty cold here. Um, the Butte Fire Department put out this booklet, and little did they know that three weeks later, basically the Butte Fire Department would be decimated. January 15th, 1895, uh, at 9.55 p.m., Officer James Steinborn was walking through the warehouse district doing his patrols, and he noticed smoke coming from the Kenyon Connell warehouse. So he goes to the call box that happened to be call box 72. It's referred to as fateful call box 72. If you're not familiar with what a call box is, before cell phones, before telephones, um, they would have call boxes situated around different neighborhoods of a city, and you could go pull the alarm, and that would sound to the fire department to let them know that there was a fire in a certain area. So Officer Steinborn goes to call box 72, pulls the alarm, and it goes sounding into the fire department, letting them know that there's a fire in the warehouse district of Butte. This, um, these photos right here are actually a sculpture of the call box 72 that's part of our memorial, but gives you a really great idea of what they look like. So the call goes in uh, to the fire department, as I mentioned, and every year we have a memorial service, a commemoration, and we usually invite a couple different reverends a couple of a couple different faiths to come say some words. And one of them, Father Rusterdoisich, always has this quote, and it's always moving, and he says, all animals run from fire. The only animals that run to fire are human beings, and those are the chosen few. And these men that night were definitely the chosen few. So they left out of what was a city hall slash the fire department. And you can see these arched doorways here. That's actually where they would come out with their carts pulled by the horses because of course at this time frame vehicles weren't a common thing yet. So they go running out and they head east on Broadway down to the warehouse district. Excuse me, I'm getting over a sinus infection. <clears throat> so upon their arrival at the warehouse district, they were focusing on the Kenyon Connell warehouse, seen here. And 
Two of the firefighters broke away doing their jobs. The one was John Flannery, and he was known as a plugman, and he went to the Montana Central Railroad freight station where there was a fire hydrant, and he was hooking the hose in there. The other one was Dave McGee, and he was blanketing the horses as it was a cold January night in Montana. So he broke away to go do that. Oh, excuse me, she was. <laughs> and um, Chief Cameron, Chief Angus Cameron, who we'll tell you more about here in a little bit, he ordered the water on while Assistant Chief John Sloan was breaking a hole into the siding of the warehouse there, trying to let the fire breathe, if you will. Small puff occurs, the firemen draw back, not thinking too much of it. The fire started over here in the office, you can see where the stove was located, and it started to move this way. And you can see over here the word powder. Over here are what we call rabble heads. So Butte, of course, had powder, right? That's what we were, we had mines. You need to cause explosion in the mine to get your ore out um, to get that metal. And the warehouse district, of course, is where supplied it, but they were only supposed to have a certain amount. Well, you know, that's not really convenient. They didn't want to have all their powder down south of Butte. So they started storing it there little by little until an unknown amount was stored there, way more than they were illegally, uh, legally excuse me, allowed to have. And the fire starts creeping across here. The firemen have no idea that there's that amount of powder within that building. <clears throat> so I mentioned it's surrounded by what we call rabble heads, which are these four by five pieces of metal. And they did that thinking, we will surround this dynamite and then when it explodes, those pieces of metal will contain it if for some reason, if it did explode, which of course it will never do. Well, instead of that occurring, the fire creeps across here, gets to the powder, they have that first little explosion, they draw back, they go back in, start fighting it again, and then in 10.08, that fire explodes. That building is gone, along with all those firemen surrounding it, except for Dave McGee and John Flannery. Those rabble heads, which were supposed to contain that powder, instead became what they quote, flying missiles of death, is what the newspaper called it. And they would end up blocks away, shot so far. Um, you may have noticed our shirts. On, there's a really great documentary on this called The Hidden Fire by um, Gus Chambers. And <laughs> here you go, you didn't see it. it. On the back it says, in view, we break rules all the time. And that's a quote from the archives director, Ellen Crane. And Ellen has that quote in that movie. And what she's referring to is, is the powder, they broke the rules. But hey, we're in Butte, we break rules all the time. So, but in this case, not so cool. Um, so that blast occurred 13 minutes after that call came in and it was felt over a mile away, so it was massive. So people come running from everywhere um, because hey, it's 1895, we're not watching television, we're not listening to the radio. Something exciting is happening. Well, heck, even if a fire occurs in Butte today, does anybody here live in Butte? A few of you I know. People love to watch fires. I don't know how it is in your town, but so people start coming, and then this blast occurs, and then they start coming to help. So now it's surrounded by who knows how many people, hundreds of people. The firefighters are gone. This place exploded. The fire has jumped to surrounding structures, including the Butte Hardware Company. 
<clears throat> There's dynamite inside of this one, of course, as well. Illegal amounts and a second explosion occurs. Ultimately, 58 people would die from this fire and these explosions at night. Excuse me. Um, we're now going to tell you a little bit more about the sculptures that we decided to memorialize in memory of these 58 lives lost. This picture shows Chief Cameron with seven of his paid, the Butte Fire Department at that time, this was the first actual paid fire department. And there were actually nine paid um, members that went with Chief Cameron that night. These are the seven that died. And then there were six, what they call Minutemen, they would be like volunteers nowadays. And they also perished. A little bit about Chief Cameron, he was actually born in Ontario, Canada. He came to Butte in 1883, and he became the fire chief in 1893. He married a Butte girl. Her name was Minnie Martin, and they had, yes, four children at the time. They didn't know that she was pregnant on the 15th of January, but on the 13th of January, one of his 10-month-old twin boys had died, failure to thrive. The fire happened on Tuesday, January 15th, and she became a widow with the, the four children, and then uh, um, she was um, pregnant with the one that would later be born in June. Normally, he would be down or at his home, and the um, fire chief's buggy would go and pick him up, bring him down to oversee the operations at the fire department and, and the scene. That night, he happened to be at the fire station with his, what he called his boys. He always treated the, the men that worked under him as family, and so it's no wonder that he was right in the thick of things that night. But he was at the fire station, so he jumped on the hook and ladder truck and headed down there. Like Lindsay said, they were only there a short time when that building totally exploded, killed 13 of the initial fi um, 15 firemen. Dave McGee was saved because he was blanketing the horses, and the First horse took the blast, knocked him down, laid on him, and killed the second horse. And so when the subsequent blasts happened, that's why Dave McGee survived. John Flannery, like Lindsay said, was back at the height. They said that he was a born leader. He treated the men like family. He trained with military precision, but nothing that they ever learned or practiced could have ever prepared him for what happened that night. So the last sighting of um, Chief Cameron was be between two warehouses, between the Canyon Connell and the Butte Hardware. When the rescuers and stuff went in to start cleaning up after this event, they found a torso between the two buildings, and everything else was gone except the torso. But it was shown that it had a belt, and Chief Cameron was always known to wear a belt with a distinctive buckle. So this is our sculpture of Chief Cameron, and he represents the 13 firemen killed that night. You'll see he's got quite a unique mustache. Our sculptor found that quite humorous when we showed him a picture of Chief Cameron. And then if you look at the statue, his tunic is left open. And the reason that it's left open is because you can look inside and there's a belt buckle and it says BFD, Butte Fire Department. The sculptor has become very invested in this and all of our pieces you're going to see and hear about nice little touches that he added to, added to it that were important to the person that he's portraying. This is Jim, the extraordinary fire horse. 
Jim was quite a horse. He was chosen in 1892 out of a herd in Dillon for his intelligence, his fleetness, and his strongness. He was seven years of age when he was purchased. He died at 31 years of age, which is a real testament to the care that the Butte Fire Department gave Jim. He left the Central Fire Station on that fateful night pulling the hook and ladder wagon with his pal Baldy. There were two other horses pulling the hose wagon. They were called Negan Prince. They were apparently a very beautiful black team. In a few minutes, their life would change dramatically. The big explosion would take place. Baldy, Jim's partner, Negan Prince would lose their lives. The force of the explosion was absolutely amazing. Baldy saved Jim's life because his body was the closest to the explosion. Once the people realized that Jim was still alive, they cut him out of his harness. He struggled, he got up, and he was so amazing. This broken, battered, bruised animal walked back to the central fire station. He knew he had to go home for safety. The fire department intended to let Jim retire, but Jim really liked working. He had different ideas. So he actually worked for the fire department until 1906. Between 1906 and 1910, Jim, every Memorial Day, hauled a wagon load of flowers down to the cemetery in honor of all those who perished. During his work, he was also the buggy horse for Chief Flannery and Chief Sanger. And the buggy horse, as, as Lindsay explained, basically, or Karen, excuse me, uh, they went to the fire chief's house and picked up the fire chief. Jim was really in tune to his job. He absolutely loved it. So one evening, the fire alarm went off, and the fireman is getting Jim ready. Well, apparently he forgot something, so he turned around to get it. Jim left the fire station without him and went to the fire chief's house. <laughs> In uh, 1900, the Anaconda Fire Department borrowed Jim. He needed to fill in for a horse that had perished, and they needed to train a new one. The Anaconda Fire Department was so impressed by this amazing horse that they had a picture taken of him. And as you can see, Jim is posing behind, uh, behind his back there is actually a picture of Chief Angus Cameron and all of his men who perished on that night. They did an enlargement of this picture, gave it to Chief Sanger, and it was placed in the Central Fire Department, which they had all left out of that night. As I said earlier, Jim was pulling the hook and ladder wagon when they left the fire station. And in the consequent years, he did not pull the hook and ladder wagon again. He kicked at it every time he went by. It, he apparently determined it was part of the problem in that evening. A few cute little notes. Uh, Jim liked tobacco. The fireman taught him that. <laughs> this sculpture piece, Jim came to us on October, or excuse me, November 21st of 2019 and this is the first snowfall on Jim after that night and we thought it depicted how Jim 
must have felt on that night as he stood in front of the fire department waiting for somebody to come and rescue him. He's beaten, he's battered, his head is down, he is a horse in, in absolute agony, but he knew to go home. Our sculptor Jim Dolan did a lot of neat things with this horse. He has horseshoes made specifically for the hooves that Jim made. And for you horse people, he even has chestnuts. In closing on Jim, I would just like to say that the city of Butte needs to thank him for his loyal service. This is Edwin Two Bear Robbins. He was the oldest person killed in the explosion. He was 52 years of age. He rushed in to help after the first explosion, lost his life in the second explosion. He was the father of five. In this picture on the far right-hand side is a nephew. The rest of the children are, are his. Edwin, Edwin had been in the Union Army. He'd been a sharpshooter and had been promoted to captain. He fought at Gettysburg and the Siege of Petersburg. Edwin's wife, Mary, and their family lived all over the western United States, but they settled in Butte in 1885. He was an interesting man. He was a math professor, a hunting guide, a mountain man, which is how he got his name, Two Bear, which he got from the Native Americans. In 1894, he wrote a book on Yellowstone. He was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's and they had planned to do a trip to Yellowstone in the fall of 1895. He's buried in the Mount Moriah Cemetery in the GAR section, which is the Great Army of the Republic section. This is Two Bears Edwin's statue at Northwestern Energy where he was on display for a while. Jim Dolan designed him to symbolize an older person who has run like crazy across town to help and he had to sit down for a second and take a breath and that's why he's shown seating there. The other thing that Jim Dolan thought about is most 52 year old men have a bald spot and so he put a bald spot on the back of his head. Gibbon Fraser was the youngest person to die he was just 12 years old. It was pretty tragic for his family, as, as we can all imagine. And the newspapers of the day, of course, they, they reported everything. They made it quite interesting. He was the 56th victim. He was just a bystander, happened to be in the area, probably checking it out, as all 12-year-old kids would do, whether you're a girl or a boy. He went to Sisters Hospital. He had a fractured leg, a broken arm, and a fractured skull. He never regained consciousness. His mother and his sister and his brother sat beside him for 14 days and watched him slowly fade away. His mother not only had to contend with Gibbon, who was hurt, but her older son, who was 19, had also been injured. Fortunately, um, his injuries were not as severe. Gibbon was buried from the family home 
on January 31st and was interred, interred excuse me, at St. Pax Cemetery. In 1907, his mother and brother both passed away and they were buried with Gibbon. Gibbon has an interesting history. His parents were the first, some of the first settlers in the Big Hole Valley. They had a ranch. William, the father, not only took care of his ranch, he made sure that schools were built in the Big Hole Valley, and he also even served on a school board. Gibbon was the first white child born in the Big Hole Valley, and there's speculation that he is named after Colonel John Gibbon of the Big Hole Massacre, but we don't know that. It is just simply speculation. William Gibbon's father died in 1890. By 1893, the Fraser children were in school in Butte. Gibbon still has many ancestors in Butte. This picture shows Gibbon with his great great, great nephew named Daniel. Daniel in this picture was 11 years old. Prior to him finding out about Gibbon and being in a part of the unveiling of Gibbon's statue, he was a typical kid. He wasn't much interested in history. Now he definitely is because he's a piece of history. When Judy talked about um, that um, Gibbon has family, um, I forgot to mention that Chief Cameron, I actually was able to find his great-granddaughter, and she lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and surprisingly enough, she actually retired from the Phoenix Fire Department. So it came full circle. This is the only known picture of um, a dog that plays a part in our story. Um, he was a big black Newfoundland. He belonged to Fireman Copeland. And he was trained to stay at the fire station when the whistles went off and William and the wagons would take off. On the night of January 15th, he did what he was trained to do, but when he heard that first big explosion, he knew something was wrong. So when the Court Street station, which was kind of the backup, went running down to the fire, or to the, fire the dog took off and followed the Court Street station down. When he got to the fire, he darted off, was looking through all of the rubble, trying to find William. Um, when he found William, and when the rescuers got to the site, the dog was laying there with William, licking William's face and crying. They tried to get William in the wagon, and the dog would not, you know, didn't want him to take William away. So they finally got William loaded into the wagon to head to the mortuary. The dog followed to the wagon to the mortuary, sat outside the mortuary and cried and cried and cried and they tried to run him off and he wouldn't leave. The day of the funeral procession, the dog followed the funeral procession from Broadway Street down to the cemetery and when the caretaker went out that night he was laying on Copeland's grave. So the caretaker, you know, invited him in, gave him some food and water. As soon as he was done, he'd scratch the door, walk back out. About uh, four weeks later, the caretaker went out and the dog was dead on Copeland's grave. He basically died of a broken heart. So we thought this was, you know, our statue. We want to include the human side of it and also the animal side of it. The bad thing with the dog is all the research that we did, we could never find a name. 
we uh, we've tried everything and we could not find a name he was always referred to as the big black dog the faithful companion so what our group decided to do is that we were going to um, have a name the dog contest with our school kids so we had produced a video in January that told the story of the dog and father Beretta here in town um, narrated it and so mrs. Robbins um, Robinson's fifth grade class from Margaret Leary watched the video at the end of it a little girl started to cry and she said he was the most loyal dog so they seized on that took the word loyal as his name well then they went a step further and they went out and researched um, the Gaelic language and in the Gaelic language the word for loyal is delis d-i-l-i-s so our committee thought that was really awesome that they went this far um, so if you go up and look at the statue the dog has and on the the bone that we had on the day that we presented the honor to the kids it has delis on one side and loyal on the other and then on the collar around his neck it also says loyal and delis it's really hard to imagine the explosion site and the carnage that was there the newspapers the next day um, it really did quite a great job and I was amazed to find out how quickly newspapers in towns such as Denver Colorado the next morning they had our explosion in their newspapers which is really amazing in 1895 the cost in the immediate area of the explosion was a hundred thousand dollars which in today's dollars equals about three million dollars a fraction of that amount of a thousand hundred thousand dollars would be needed to repair the windows in Butte and for some reason almost all of the windows in Butte happened to be plate glass windows there wasn't enough glass in the state of Montana to repair all of all of those windows there were at least six warehouses in the area the Montana Central Freight Depot and the Garrison House not a timber or a stone was left standing in the three westernmost buildings everything combustible had been devoured by the fires the Royal Milling Warehouse had a few timbers here and there tottering with bags of smoldering flour these were not the same style warehouses as we see today these were simple wooden structures covered with corrugated iron which of course turned into additional missiles of death a current warehouse built today would probably exceed three million dollars for a single warehouse they said for six or more warehouses it was only a hundred thousand dollars I think the economic cost of this event, as stated in the book, The Great Warehouse Explosion of Butte, Montana, January 15, 1895, by John Francis Davies, it had this quote in it, it the economic cost was insignificant compared to the loss of life and the emotional trauma experienced by the citizens of Butte and the families of those who had killed or maimed family members possibly even friends males of all ages were taken from those who loved them 
If the noise of the explosion could be heard 50 miles away in Willow Creek, Montana, you can only imagine the sound of the explosion in Butte. Today, we would say people suffered from PTSD, but in 1895, that was un an unknown effect. The glow of the fire lit the sky, and the smoke must have been dreadful. Many homes in the area close to ground zero were constructed of wood, and everybody must have wondered if their home would burn or if possibly the whole city would burn. The sounds of crying must have come from every corner of Butte. What was this terrible event and what was going to happen to them? Families were filled with terror as men of all ages rushed to help at the explosion site. The families of the firemen probably suffered the greatest immediate anguish. They knew the dangers their loved ones faced on a daily basis. This is the street scene in front of um, the Central Fire Station, City Hall, um, where the firemen left that night. Um, there were three to 4,000 people from all over the state that came to the funeral. Um, it started up there. Um, Governor Rickards and his staff led the parade, followed by the military. And then came the wagon. And there were um, six hearses, two undertaking wagons, and probably the, the saddest one is the large flatbed wagon that held nine coffins. Um, eight of the coffins were for the bodies of the unclaimed. We know their names, but they had no family to bury them, so the city buried them. Um, the ninth coffin contained the torso of Chief Cameron and what was left of three of his men. There were not enough, um, by, enough of a full body to warrant a casket for each of them. So they are all buried in Mount Moriah in one um, casket. There was Sam Ash, um, PJ Norlin, and um, Dave Moses. So to this day, they are still buried together, just as they perished that night. So, as we talk about such a grim subject on this lovely Saturday morning, one of the uplifting things that came out of this was evident in how many people attended their funeral services. Um, and then going through the newspapers, we noticed some of these really great articles that mentioned the generosity of Butte and Montana, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, over here, a prompt response, citizens in line with cash to relieve the needy. People were ready to give what they could to help those people that needed to bury uh, their loved ones, needed to, you know, a lot of them, these were all men or young boys that died in this, so a lot of them lost uh, their primary household income, of course, so people were willing to help out. So that was always, that's, that was an uplifting thing to read. Another article stated that railroad companies who were also affected by this great explosion as it was in the warehouse district, right next to those rail lines. They were donating money to the Relief Fund. Um, a big name you might notice up here, W.A. Clark, one of the Copper Kings, donated $1,000 to the Relief Fund, which we'll take. I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little critical. He could have done more than that, you know? He was W.A. Clark. Um, <laughs> but we'll still take it. Um, as is done today, entertainment benefits were held. 
Um, I don't know about you guys, but here in Butte, when we find out somebody has cancer within our community, we hold all sorts of entertainment benefits, um, whether it's a fundraiser auction or a bingo night. Um, so they did something similar to that as well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And railroad companies offered free transportation for the remains of victims that they, you know, probably maybe wanted buried elsewhere, or Minnesota, for example. Um, they were giving them uh, free transportation home. One quote that really hit me from a newspaper article was, the community would not find it necessary to call upon outsiders for help. As Judy mentioned, Denver, Colorado knew about this tragedy the day after it happened, and other states were also very generous in offering to send money, but they felt that views in the community of Montana could handle helping those in need. Um, as I mentioned before, Butte and Montana are the best kind of people, and this is what we're known for. So, kind of a proud moment to be a Montanan reading these excerpts. In 1895, undertakers prepared the bodies for funerals, and the funerals were normally held in homes, not in funeral parlors like we have nowadays. Of the 58 victims, we know which mortuary 57 of them were processed at. We cannot find a death certificate for William Freaky, so we don't know where he was taken. Sherman undertakers had 23 bodies. They also had a stock of caskets. So what we don't know is did the other undertaking places need to borrow caskets from Sherman's or did they maybe have to get them from other places, which would have been difficult based on the devastation in the warehouse area that the trains would have come into. Um, at Butte, undertaking the, Mrs. McCobb, sorry about that, the body parts of Cameron, Ash, Norlean, and Moses were taken to Butte undertaking. At the scene of the explosion, there were many baskets of body parts picked up, which just seems almost impossible. Montana undertaking had 12 bodies. The enormity of the need for caskets must have been incredible, and we do wonder, as I stated, whether all of the caskets needed were in town or if they needed to come from elsewhere. Railroad spurs came into the warehouse area, so that had been destroyed, and it, trains would have come in, still come into town. They would not have hit those spurs. If caskets had to be ordered in, they would have been unloaded and hauled by wagons to the undertaking parlors. The morgues were overrun with people looking for loved ones. It was reported the anguished cries of those who discovered their loved ones brought tears to those outside of the morgues. Hospitals for those who perished were Sisters Hospital, who had five victims, Murray and Frund, who had six victims, Haviland Blackburn, which was a rather unknown hospital, had one victim. We don't have a great picture of the Haviland Hospital, but we do have a faint picture. In the 
far right-hand corner, you can see a building. That's the Haviland Blackburn Hospital. The beautiful building that you see behind the two people is our art chateau built by William Clark. And on the balcony here, these two people are on Patrick Largies, one of the Butte Copper Kings, the fourth one of, of his home. <clears throat> 43 victims never went to the hospital. They perished at the explosion site. 11 people that perished that never went to the hospital were firemen. One was a policeman and 31 were regular citizens. It's important to note that many citizens who were not in the immediate area were hurt when hit by the flying shrapnel and a few were actually hurt by being hit with a flying body. The hospitals had so many victims needing attention that some convalescent patients in the hospital gave up their rooms for the injured. The doctors and nurses worked all night and into the morning trying to alleviate the suffering of those who had been injured. It's very important to note that no women died in the explosion. Um, this is a picture of the St. James Hotel, and um, the owner was um, Harry Jeffer Henry Jefferson, and um, he reported that all of the windows in his building were um, blown out at the time. He also found a five-gallon, or five-pound, demolished bucket embedded in the roof of his establishment. Um, the explosion was so powerful that the locks on the doors were loosened in a lot of um, businesses and homes, and so the doors could not be latched anymore. Um, how awful it must have been, it, like we said, it was January 15th, it was extremely cold that night. Um, just think about did all these people, that their windows were blown out, there was no homeowner's insurance back then. You, wouldn't, you didn't know if the lumber yards were going to be damaged, if you were going to be able to get anything. Do you have the money to replace the re, uh, to make the repairs? Um, worst of all, is your husband coming home? Um, it, you know, they probably put blankets up over their windows for that night and probably sat as close to the stoves as they possibly could. The business owners in that district, was your business safe from looters? You know, how do you keep your merchandise from freezing? Because uh, it was going to take weeks to um, repair the damage to the buildings in that area. So you know, we just have to think about, you know, what affected the actual um, victims because, like we said, there was no homeowner's insurance at that time to help you with that. So as we mentioned before, the fire department was essentially wiped out beyond John Flannery and Dave McGee. There were other volunteer fire departments located within the city. John Flannery would go on to become the chief of the fire department and they would rebuild. Uh, and here they are in front of City Hall again, the hook and, hook and ladder team. Um, another thing I want to touch on is the Firemen's Association, which was established in 1889 and that's when they had their first convention. Where at? In Butte, of course. Um, <laughs> but because of this disaster, they realized that, you know, as I mentioned, they, a lot of people didn't have the money to bury their dead, for example, or continue on living their lives without their main, uh, their primary money maker. So in 1899, 
W.J. Sweeney, a Democrat from Helena, proposed House Bill Number 17 to the State Senate here in Montana. Um, and this would establish disability and retirement for the state firefighters. This was passed unanimously in the House and opposed by one in the Senate. Um, and up in, to today, this is the second best state retirement plan in the state of Montana, thanks to uh, W.J. Sweeney proposing this, inspired by the Great Explosion here in Butte. <clears throat> All right. Lawsuits, you can imagine there were many of them. If you had money for a lawyer, or there was a lawyer willing to take your case for part of the proceeds, you could file a lawsuit against the Kenyon Connell Company because they had been deemed the responsible party. 20 lawsuits were filed. Not all of them were by private individuals. A few were by businesses. Some of those who filed suits were Sophia Goddard. I found this one rather interesting. You can only wonder sometimes if the lawyers for the Kenyon Connell had a conscience. When Sophia Goddard filed suit against them for the death of her husband, they maintained that the explosion did not start on their property. They maintained that Albert Goddard was trespassing on their property. I think the, the jury thought that was so preposterous and maybe that's why they awarded her $5,000, which in today's money would be over $160,000. Mary Brink filed lawsuit against the Kenyon Connell for $20,000. William Brink was at home the night of January 15th. A piece of metal came through the window, a rabble head of course, and struck him in the head. William went to the doctor, got checked out, had his head stitched up, and everybody thought all was well. But later, William started having frequent headaches, which he went to the doctor for. They determined he had a fractured skull and a piece of bone had been pressing on his brain. Surgery was performed, which he recovered from, but unfortunately, he got a strep germ and ultimately died 66 days after the explosion. Mary had four children at home and was now a widow. Ultimately, she was rewarded, awarded $15,000, which in today's money is over $480,000. William Brink died, as I said, 66 days after the explosion. And the coroner's, journey, uh, coroner's jury had already closed out the end of January 1895. So for many years, we did not know he was the 58th victim. Everything was reported as having 57 victims. Um, there is family in Butte also for William Brink. And we really appreciate the families that we find for our victims. Mary Sloan was the next person who filed suit against the Kenyon Connell. Mary's a tragic story. She lost her husband and two firefighter sons in the explosion. The sons were killed instantly and their father lingered for a day. Mary's suit was for $20,000 and they granted her 15,000. 
Amelia Sloan, Mary's daughter-in-law, filed for her husband, John Sloan Jr., and the amount of $15,000 was granted. Minnie Cameron, Chief Cameron's wife, also filed suit against Kenyon Connell and William A. Clark for $20,000 for the death of her husband. She, at, at the point that she filed that, she had five children because she had recently delivered little Gaylord. Um, Minnie was feisty. She fought. So she had not only this suit, but many other small suits that she had to deal with for some property that her husband had. The Kenyon Connell Company went into receivership before any of the monies that I mentioned above were distributed. And on March 26th, 1900, 20 damage suits against the Kenyon Connell Company, Company were dismissed as settled. The Daily Intermountain newspaper on September 26, 1900 announced that the Kenyon Connell Company had been dissolved. It was also stated all the settlements had been comprised, and we don't know the settlement final settlement amounts, but it appear, appears the plaintiffs received enough money to make a difference. One example was Minnie Cameron. She settled for enough money to purchase rental properties and send her children to college. Okay, now we get into some of the key players in this event. This is Michael J. Connell. He was born in England in 1854. He moved to the U.S. when he was in his 20s. Um, he had worked at a dry goods store in Boston, and in 1875, he moved to Deer Lodge, and he went to work for E.L. Bonner Mercantile. He was at, um, it was kind of funny, he had a room in the back of the um, hardware, or the mercantile store, and he slept back there because the hotel was too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, after two years, E.L. Bonner was opening a store in Butte, and he was made the manager of it. Soon, the Butte store, this one on the right, um, outdid the profits of the original store. In 1891, MJ bought out his um, E.L. Um, Bonner Partners and opened the MJ Connell Company. And because he wanted a bigger, better facility with things like electric lights, steam heat, elevators, <laughs> ironically, better fire protection, he moved to Granite in Maine. His store was one of the best equipped west of Chicago, and it was called the M.J. Connell Block. He also opened Miner's Lumber in 1886, which became Big Blackfoot Lumber with Marcus Daly and former Butte Mayor William Thompson. He was closely associated with the Bonner Lumber Company and the Missoula Mercantile. He employed clerks who would later become prominent businessmen, such as D.J. Hennessy, who would then open the Hennessy store here. He married Mary Agnes Keene of Boston in 1890. They traveled the U.S. and um, Europe, but settled in Butte. And their, um, his home was on granite and Idaho, and it still stands today. He was, a prominent, he was prominent also in the incorporation of the Silver Bowl Club here and the golf course, which is now the Butte Country Club. Because his name was on the Kenyon Connell business, it was assumed that he also knew about the daily um, running of the operations. But when he testified, he said that he only had a $25,000 um, 
investment in it and even though he was listed as the president he only attended one board meeting he did not have the day-to-day -day operations of it um, he was um, William Rose Ken um, Kenyon which I'll talk about next was actually the day-to-day -day runner and the one that brought in the illegal dynamite MJ um, left Butte in 1902. He settled in Los Angeles, was a big investor down there, very generous. He gave, one of his charities was $20,000 a year to the LA School District Milk Fund. Um, his wife died in an automobile accident 10 years before him. Um, during all of the financial fight, and Lindsay will talk more about a guy named Riley Tom, uh, Thomas Riley, he made threats against the three main holders and in um, November of 1896, Riley Thomas threatened MJ with a gun and he was subsequently arrested. This is William R. Kenyon and in our research we have come to figure out that he was probably the biggest um, dishonest person in this whole thing. He was born in 1839 in New York, he moved to Iowa, was in the mercantile business, he left Iowa, came to Butte, opening the Canyon Connell Hardware Store, which became the largest supply house in the Northwest. He was elected the mayor in 1887 and 1888. And so he should have known better than to be breaking the laws with the dynamite, but obviously not. His home was at 323 North Montana, and it's now a vacant lot. The research shows that he had the day-to-day -day operations, an employee testified that he had seen a lot of dynamite in the, in the building, but they never did come up with um, the amount that actually was there. After the explosion, the victims filed the lawsuits, and as Judy told you, they even tried to call the people trespassers. So, it, um, and the verdicts, they were in receivership. Um, Kenyon also said that Thomas Riley threatened him. So they gave him round-the-clock protection from the police department. Nothing ever materialized. He ended up leaving Butte um, the day after Patrick Largy's murder, which Lindsay will tell you about. And he moved to Texas, opened a, another hardware store that failed. He finally moved back to New York, joined his brother who had a successful um, lumber business and that's where he stayed until he died. All right, Patrick Largy, um, he was known as our fourth Copper King here. He was born in Ohio in 1838 and he came to Montana in 1866. He uh, ended up in Virginia City where he made a good amount of money and then he moved to Butte in 1879. He married a woman named Lulu Sellers and they had four children together. They lived at 403 West Broadway which no longer stands, but this was, you know that couple, that picture that we had of the couple sitting there? That was actually his son and his wife, Creighton and Ursula Largy, who I just love their story. Um, they were sitting on this porch here, across the street is that Clark Chateau. Give you an idea of where that was. Uh, Largy was very accomplished. He established the electric light plant here in Butte, a telegraph line in southwest Montana. He was involved in the Butte Intermountain newspaper. He was also involved in Butte Hardware. You might remember that name from one of those uh, warehouses that was part of the explosion. And he was president of the State Savings Bank. Um, 
One of the men who was injured in the blast was named Thomas Riley. And he was born in Nebraska, and he was 32 come 1898. He was at the scene of the sex explosion, as I mentioned, and his leg was injured. And he would have three surgeries before it was um, fully amputated. And he was quite bitter about this. He couldn't get a good job, can't have a good job, you can't pay your bills, he, so he was down and out. Um, he was told it wasn't worth his time to chase after the owners of the warehouses. Sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he didn't pursue any lawsuits. But as mentioned before, he would harass Kenyon, Connell, and Patrick Largy. Connell got him a job, and that business went under, so he lost his job. The three men came together, came together and gave him $1,500 total. He operated a mining claim in Deer Lodge until, oh, until he ran out of money. And then he came back to Butte and started harassing these men again. Um, Largy secured Riley a job at the Montana Ore Processing Company, which was owned by F. Augustus Heinze, and he was let go because of his disability. Um, so come January 11th, 1898, he had been harassing these men and actually making death threats against them. Uh, Connell was out of town at the time, and Kenyon was going to be out of town quite quickly afterwards. Um, January 11th, 1898, he goes into the State Savings Bank right here. Today, Metals Bank is now situated there. It's a pretty prominent uh, building in Butte you're probably familiar with. He went to the bank and he asked for Largy. So Largy comes out of his office. He's familiar with Thomas Riley, of course, at this point. And they started having a conversation. All of a sudden, the other clerks hear, boom, and Riley had shot. He actually attempted to shoot Largy in the head. Largy realized what was happening. He shot him in the left shoulder as Largy ducked behind the counter. Largy pops back up to see if Riley had gone, and this is when Largy actually did shoot him in the head. Um, he started, Riley took off as Largy passed away. Another clerk tried to apprehend him. He shot at that clerk. Thankfully, he missed. And he left the building and um, fled through the streets of Butte, which is, of course, very busy and very congested. And people who are hearing these shots wanting to know what's going on. So it almost kind of made it for a better getaway for him. Um, thankfully, he was found later. And when he found out that Largy had died, he said that he felt no remorse. He got what was coming to him, essentially. So the city of Butte put him in the jail. They were afraid of, one, people coming to take Largy out of the jail to lynch him because, or not Largy, good lord, sorry, Riley out of the jail. <laughs> uh, Riley out of the jail because Largy was such a well-loved uh, person in Butte and they were afraid people would come lynch him. And then they were also afraid that people would take sympathy with Riley and just break him out and help him escape. So they hired extra guards um, while Riley was contained in the Butte jail. Um, the trial was moved to Helena, and he was sentenced to life in May 1898. Uh, during his entire life, Riley stayed a member of the Western Mining Federation, and they petitioned for him to have a pardon in 1910. Well, that didn't go through, and he continued many times for many years afterwards trying to get pardoned. He was finally pardoned in 1937 by Governor Roy Ayers, um, and Riley would die. I forgot to do more slides, I'm sorry. <laughs> and Riley would die uh, a little over a year later in 1938. So we leave you with this question to think about today, because I'm quite honestly not sure how I feel about this. Um, I'll tell you this, though, so I kind of think I know how I feel about it. 
I used to work at the World Museum of Mining, and somebody came in and they said, I hear you have this artifact of Patrick Larkey's. May I, may I see it? And I said, oh yeah, you know, da, da, da. what's your interest? And she said, I'm his great granddaughter. And I just ah, flipped out. <laughs> the, the girl that was working in the gift shop was looking at me like I had 10 heads. But I'm like, this is Patrick Larkey's great granddaughter. You do not understand. Um, <laughs> treated her like royalty. Um, so my question to you, our question is, do you feel that Largy was a villain in all of this, owning view hardware, or do you feel he may have been a victim, um, ultimately, of the 1895 explosion, because that is why he died? Um, we'll leave you with this real quick. Here is a completion of our sculpture. It's located uptown at the corner of Mercury and Idaho at the Uptown View Fire Station, if you're interested in looking.